Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host Samuel Davies and thank you for joining us for this episode in which we will be talking about Supporter Journeys and we talked to Kevin Schulman, founder and managing partner of Donor Voice. We talked to Kevin about Supporter Journeys, about what they are and why charities both here in the UK and in, in the States and elsewhere are talking about them and investing in them. And uh, in our current climate, certainly here in the UK at the moment, we are dealing with some very low public trust in charities and uh, a number of different uh, issues that have been reported in the media at great length. And so it seems even more important that charities do more to build better, more long-term relationships with their supporters and supporter journeys may well be the answer. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Kevin Schulman and our interview a few weeks ago about supported journeys. Here we go. Kevin, welcome to Charity Chat. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. So uh, we're talking today about supported journeys, and for a lot of people out there, they might understand different things about what a supported journey is. Can you clarify for us what a supported journey is and why it's so vital to charities? Well, perhaps. I'm, I'm, maybe I muddy it, so you tell me. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's a nice term, right? I mean, it, 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 it connotes some uh, focus on the supporter. So we're calling it supporter journey versus organization journey. Uh, and it, it is, is really in vogue not just in the charity sector but in the commercial sector where the commercial sector knows and has known for a while that a large part of the, the repurchase decision is not tied to the, the product per se, meaning the, the physical attributes and benefits. Uh, it's tied to the, the experience. And that experience is, uh, on the one hand, abstract, and on the other, very specific. I mean, it, it's abstract, and that experience suggests kind of this cum- cumulative judgment that gets made, right? Uh, and, and that's often subconscious that then steers our behavior. So I either buy again or I don't. Um, But experience can also be really specific if you think about a given interaction and then the judgment that's made by that supporter, good, bad, or in between. Mm -hmm. So making an online donation, for example, that that process and the, the various pages that constitute the user experience. Well, there there are judgments that are being made, rendered, right? And again, perhaps subconsciously, but there's very little measurement that goes on around that experience, right? We have some behavioral data, if we're thinking about that online giving as sort of a microcosm of journey, uh, that would tell us about time on page and, and completion, right? How many folks actually get from page one to the final submit button? And, and the stats overall are horrendous. <laughs> Most people don't. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? And, mm-hmm. and if if the notion that they have an experience and that that experience matters, um, then there ought to be some measurement in place to ask these folks, to evaluate that, to get a true measure of that experience and their judgment. So I guess a long-winded answer to say, I think supporter journey is, is a bit of a misnomer now. Supporter journey really just sort of currently, in most instances, it's going to manifest itself into a set of 
touch points, formal touch points, communications that we push out the door. And that gets housed in Excel, and it turns into a production schedule, right? And oftentimes, you've got more than one Excel document. You've got the offline version and the online version, and you've got the one that goes to the one-off cash donors versus the monthly committed, not fully acknowledging or at least allowing for the reality that lots of folks fit across those domains and buckets. So it's a misnomer that has the best of intention, which is to put ourselves in their shoes and, and be empathetic. And, and that that's a useful kind of mental shift, but it, it requires a whole different set of theories or points of view on how the world works, and then by extension, process and methodology to really put any any meat on that bone. Otherwise, it's just a, a well-intentioned exercise that never gets executed. And I suppose if it's done badly, then it just takes up a lot of time for the charity kind of making a, the best uh, effort they can, but maybe not making any difference to their fundraising, for example. Yeah, precisely. In fact, in most instances, you're going to make it worse, not better, right? Mm. Uh, and that's that, that's just because the, the odds and the averages are against you, meaning, so, so journey planning today tends to be um, this very internal exercise, and it's, it's, it's concocted, uh, it's made up, uh, mm. and, and there's, there tends to be a set of assumptions that just have no basis, and, and I don't know that these assumptions ever get officially stated, but one of them is that more is better, right? So if I'm going to look at, at a planning calendar, whether it's Excel or whatever else, I've got 12 months, I've got 52 weeks, I've got various channels, and and the planning becomes, let's fill it up. Let's just fill it up. Every month, every week, hell, every day if we can, and I've got multiple departments, and they all want to fill it up with their stuff too. Mm -hmm. All these sort of discrete judgments get made to, to rationalize filling it up, meaning, well, I'm offline, so we have to have some of those touch points, surely, and I'm online, so we need some of those, but it gets worse than that, where, okay, so now we have some touch points, these formal kind of push-based communications that are asking for money, but even there, we start to create these artificial buckets, right? Oh, well, this is a special appeal, this is a matching gift, mm. this is an upgrade, and so we, we can argue and rationalize our way into these things being different and therefore it it's worth sending out it's not it's not a redundant barrage of ass it's all these different discrete things and the same thing happens on the communications that don't ask for money right oh this is stewardship this is engagement this is showing impact this is donor stories i mean it they're really contrived and as it turns out none of those discrete categories for all intents and purposes, kind of exists in the donor's mind. And so it feels like a, a, a just a barrage of stuff. You know, one of the examples I've used in the past, and I don't know if it's a very good one, is I talk about um, if I'm talking to a supporter like I'm talking to my friend Michael, and my friend Michael, if I'm asking him every time to give me a donation for an event I'm doing or just to maybe give me some money, um, then after a short time, my friend Michael won't really be my friend for much longer. And is that a way of looking at the supporter journey or how we should be treating people generally? Is that kind of a good way of modeling it? Yeah, I think some of those sort of um, kind of take a step back, simple kind of rhetorical exercises like that can be useful. I mean, the, think about one-off cash giving, right? 
which in the States is kind of the predominant way that money gets raised. And so I'll, I'll use a U.S. data as an example, but it applies in any market uh, when we're talking about one-off cash giving, where if you're a big mature brand in the U.S., and th then one of, the, one of the metrics that's really simple and I think it's useful to look at, and this again, this applies to any charity, I don't care where you are, for these cash folks, how many donations do I get per donor per year, right? And this is where I know the U.S. stats kind of um, on the top of my head. Sort of as, as, a, as a ballpark average, you get about 1.6 gifts per donor per year, single cash gifts, right. right? And if you're really crappy at that metric, maybe you're a 1.3 or a 1.4. And if you're doing an outstanding job, maybe you're about two or a little bit north of two, 2.2 gifts. Now, to get that, most of these charities are sending out anywhere from 10 to 25 direct mail appeals. And it, it's definitely... It skews to the higher end of that range. The distribution is not even across that range. And on top of that, 50, 60 emails minimum, right? Yeah. And, and so to, to give you another example, that rhetorical exercise that you posed, if you were starting a charity today and your aim was to get two donations from me in the mm. course of 12 months, yeah. no one in their right mind would start that business today and say, all right, here's my plan to get two donations from Kevin or Sam. I'm going to mail them 15 times and I'm going to send them 60 emails. No one would ever come up with that. And yet that's where we have arrived, right? It's, it's this, it's a volume mindset. And this, this plays out in monthly giving too. the, the, you know, the committed donors that it, the same thing plays out. It is a volume model where that is our only ultimate answer is that we need more. Yeah. And it doesn't always mean solicitation. It's just more stuff that's intended to engage. And now we've got more channels available to us, so it's more stuff through more channels. Um, and that is fundamentally how journeys get planned. And are you seeing these kind of typical mistakes that charities are making the UK market as well? Presumably it would be the same as the UK as it is in America. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's exactly the same. We, yeah, we, do, we do lots of work in the UK and other parts of Europe and, and you know, obviously the US as well. And the UK has, has kind of doubled down on the volume game in, in this way, in that the average amount that they ask for as a monthly commitment mm -hmm. is low. Uh, there is nobody in the States who's asking for five or six bucks a month. Mm -hmm. And no, I mean, you're if you're doing monthly acquisition regardless of channel the the, the average is going to be much closer to 20 bucks a month wow. right 20 dollars yeah. uh, so now I, there, there's that's that's kind of doubling down on the volume model and it's neither good nor bad is sort of an initial judgment it just has consequences right that that volume model has consequences and you've got to be you've got razor thin margins right it's kind of the walmart model now walmart is one of the the, the biggest best retailers around run by a lot of smart folks but you can only have one or two walmarts meaning there's only one or two entities that can get that big have that kind of scale and be able to make the business run on tight margins, which almost invariably means you've got to squeeze your suppliers, which they're notorious or famous for, depending on your perspective. Well, same thing happens in the UK market, right? You've got a couple of charities that are the, the, the biggest players. And they're the biggest players 
in large part, although they probably wouldn't characterize it this way, based on the the mission. So cancer charities are really big. Why? Because it's a very high incidence disease, and so it affects a lot of people. So you can be out in the street, and you're going to have a high probability of, of making a connection with somebody who has some sort of connection to cancer, right? Same thing with Red Cross, just a really big kind of ubiquitous brand that, that is touching a lot of folks. So you're going to have one or two really large players who can make the volume business work, in part because they can squeeze the suppliers like crazy. And then everyone else is going to have to live with the consequence of that. We're talking about charities listening to this podcast and, and understanding that you know, what, what does and doesn't make a decent supporter journey or a decent connection with your supporters. How can charities develop um, consistently effective supporter journeys? How how, how does that happen? There's two requirements, both of which require as an initial starting point some some change in mindset. And and I I think the mindset shift is is starting to occur. And and, sometimes you you change because you see the light or because you feel the heat. I'm not sure which of those is uh, the more likely causal factor here. And... You know, I would give a nod to the UK market being at least qualitatively ahead of, say, the US market in in one of those two mindset shifts. And it is the the mindset where we recognize that the idea behind supporter journey is that we're going to dig a little bit deeper and understand supporter motivation, needs, preferences, right? And so to do that you've actually got, you can't just stare at your CRM behavioral data. You're never going to divine an answer on why looking at behavioral data, ever. You can torture it to death and it'll never tell you why. So if we want to get at why, we've got to have a different approach, which is going to include some form of research to unearth some of the motivations and needs and preferences. And I do think the UK market has spent more time and money there. Now, what we're encountering is that there was there's there's conceptually the right aim, but but the way that it gets done tends to be off the mark, and so it's not getting them any closer. But they've at least made the shift to start to ask the right questions and pursue those answers on supporter motivation and needs and preferences. So that's that's one piece. Is you have got to it, it's an archaeology dig, right? I mean, getting at the why of human behavior does not require new technology or a new CRM or a new website. It requires a set of uh, specialized skills honed in social sciences and you either got to buy it or rent it to, to get those answers. So that's that's one mindset shift. The other that goes with it is, is operationally and organizationally and structurally, a lot of at least mature businesses um, and even the ones that are sort of fledgling are more focused on delivery than they are discovery. And what I mean by that is that delivery is about exploiting what we know in order to get something close to what we expect. And that that's, that's the origin of efficiency. So a lot of these charities are set up to try to be efficient. And that is, that's a good thing. That, that is a role of business, is to be efficient and to exploit what we know, sure. right? Now, you start to reach uh, diminishing returns in what that can that, – that's very difficult to get sustained growth year over year. Mm. It, it can help you sort of tread water and 
maintain where you are. But what organizations need to have, and this this is a mindset shift that that then can manifest itself in, in some different changes in stru- structure and setup, you got to be focused on discovery, right? So you need delivery, but you also need in parallel discovery, which is that sort of connotes exploring, right? Which which is going to imply that you're you're fighting against established norms and habits. You're trying to find new realities on new horizons. That's the origin of innovation. And so you've got to have efficiency, and you've got to have some discovery and innovation. And I don't think that there's a concerted effort on the innovation side, where and, and to achieve it. All the process and all the, the organizational structure is set up for delivery. It's very difficult for that same operation to do innovation, mm-hmm. at least systematically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so oftentimes you need to have a separate group. And the group for a small charity can be a single person. But someone has got to be focused on putting the current business out of business, right? That ought to be the mindset. And, and that can just apply to the control journey. Like there has to be a better way. And so my job is to come up with that better way. And, and those people or that group needs to be given permission, both explicitly and implicitly, to be able to operate differently. If you've got to try to get discovery done in, in, in bureaucracy, mm. it's, it's never going to happen. What tips would you give to a someone listening to this podcast that maybe is with a very small charity and wants to embark on, you know, this discovering, you know, better way of dealing with their supporters, what kind of things could they start with? It wouldn't hurt to do a little bit of just desk research. I mean, there's a lot can be had by just Googling on uh, donor understanding or starting the customer domain because there's just a lot more content there, right? So uh, that's kind of a generic answer. But I would encourage a, a level of sort of intellectual curiosity that doesn't have to go much beyond your, your desktop and Google to start to look at what other organizations do. There's a lot of free content out there is my point. Mm. Um, sort of more specifically, it's never a bad idea to inquire with supporters informally or, or formally. Formally mean just some, some bespoke standalone survey that can be done in SurveyMonkey for free. Mm. Ask them about, you can ask why they support, but that, that the way that's phrased, it tends to get you a lot of rational answers. Right. Now, if you ask a why they support question, and again, that can be done conversationally or in some you know cheap, easy, free survey, amongst the rational answers, if, if you kind of dig through that and intuit, you, you can see some some more meaningful kind of root cause answers, right? So if I'm a, I'm a disease charity, people who start to talk about uh, open-endedly their connection to that disease, right? Either they're a survivor or a carer, mm-hmm. um, people who are donating to some conservation group and will talk about their walks through, uh, you know, nature trails and how that was a material part of their childhood growing up, right? All of, all of these reasons for support, motivation, and intent tend to be very autobiographical, right? And so why, why do you support us tends not to get those answers kind of ironically. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I would suggest a less direct approach to actually get to the, the answer that you're after. And that can be asking them just to think about kind of contextually what they were doing before they decided to donate, what was it that inspired them to give, right? Just 
slightly less direct, open-ended questions, and then just let them talk, especially if it's in a, in a phone conversation or in-person meeting. Let them talk. And you can actually do this with, go to your, your most committed supporters, right? Um, because what they're just be more willing to be expressive and just talk and, and kind of emote. And what you uncover for them by way of these sort of autobiographical kind of root cause motivations, it, it's going to apply to the folks who aren't who aren't currently your best supporters. Mm. And one of the simple things that can and should be done is w- once you've unearthed something, you've got a hypothesis about, all right, there's, we would call them in, in our world identities, these, these social science constructs. So let's say I've got somebody who's, if it's a, uh, I don't know, pick, pick a charity, what would be useful, uh, kind of a, a category? Is it disease um, or nature? Yeah, sure, disease. Let's go with disease. All right, so I'll, I'll give a disease and a concept. Disease is easy, right? Where, it, and all this sounds super obvious after the fact. Not, it, it shouldn't surprise anybody that the absolute, the, the number one reason people support a disease charity is because they've got some sort of connection to it. And, and you can draw out your consent, concentric circles, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I have MS, or someone in my immediate family has MS. Mm-hmm. And then the next circle out is my extended family, or I've got someone close to me who has MS. MS. Well, it's not difficult to, if the mindset is right, and then you put some process in, to ask people about their connection, right? And it's not enough, and plenty of charities will do that. And they may even record it in the database, and then they do absolutely nothing with it. Nothing. And I would, I would encourage going further than the, the something that you do with it being one, one copy line change in the direct mail appeal or the email appeal that says, you know, as a... As a uh, survivor of cancer or as someone living with MS, you know, and then everything else is the exact same. But mm. at the very least, do that. At the very least, yeah. right? But you, with a little bit more digging, you'll, you'll discover that they have different needs when it comes to that charity. So someone who has MS, the best way to get them to give is to have your interactions and the content of those interactions look like it was sent by supporter services, right? And or the information services side of the house, the program side of the house. Mm. Give them what they want and they'll give you what you want. It's reciprocal in that way, right? But too often it is just this canned crappy uh, appeal asking for money that has doesn't acknowledge at all who they are and why they support. Right? But it wouldn't take much to again just Make that a part of your business process to ask that kind of classifying question. You know, if you're a conservation group, are they into protecting the the environment for future generations, which means they got sort of a people orientation? Are they into protecting the environment for animals and nature? And as far as they're concerned, humans should tread lightly, right? Those two those two identities exist. They want very different things from that organization. At the very least. The people people are going to want to see human beings engaging, taking, having activities as a part of nature. The sure. animal people aren't going to want to see a human footprint on the path. Whatever you do, do not fall into the trap of thinking that, that demographics matter. I mean, there, there's a lot of generational charlatans out there now who are pitching. Uh, 
millennials as some sort of a marketing segment. I mean, it's just it's sheer garbage and nonsense. And so don't fall prey to that. And there's a lot of it that's out there. And and a lot of the a lot of the segmentations that are being purchased by these bigger brands, and they're spending a boatload of money, are they'll have lots of clever little names for these segments, right? It's your blue bloods, it's your uh, your suburban dwellers, it's your soccer moms. And underneath all of that is nothing but a bunch of demographics that are cobbled together either statistically or whatever else. And it it's alluring, and in some ways it might be intuitive that it should matter, but demographics are never explanatory, like true root cause, right? The, the, the MS bit, right? Well, you and I are both white males, let's for discussion's sake say we're both heterosexual, married to a female, each have two kids, live in the exact same neighborhood, right beside each other, drive the same damn car. Well, if MS is marketing, and I have MS and you don't, mm. well, all these segmentation schemes are gonna ignore that last piece of information and they're going to put us in the exact same category. And we couldn't be further apart. Kevin Shulman, thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. Hey, appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so there you go, dear listener. That was Kevin Shulman. Big thank you to him for a very being a very inspiring guest and uh, for all his, uh, his kind support of the show. Um, I hope that you have a good idea now of what a supporter journey is and how your charity could potentially improve theirs to improve their relationship with their existing and potential supporters. Uh, We'd love to hear from you about any positive or negative supporter journey stories you may have. Perhaps you're a supporter of a charity and have been receiving lots of irrelevant or unnecessary communications. Uh, Perhaps you're being asked too much or not enough to support a cause. Maybe you work for a charity which is doing a good or a bad job of engaging with their supporters. We'd love to hear from you, and we will always keep your comments confidential and uh, anonymise any details relating to you or the charity. So uh, it's good to share knowledge, and uh, so please do contact us through the website, charitychat.org.uk, or email info at charitychat.org.uk. It's just left for me to once again thank Kevin for contributing to this episode. Uh, Thank you for listening and to thank our corporate sponsors for making all of this possible. So that's Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for beautiful website design. Visit our website, charitychat.org.uk to see her handiwork. RR Yard Photography for the fantastic pro bono photos that they've provided for our website. And of course, Forest of Fools who have been playing intermittently throughout the show and are going to be playing us out now. Thanks ever so much, and speak to you soon. Cheerio.